Hey there, everybody. Welcome to Realty Speak, the podcast where experts share valuable insights, answer questions, and tell some real world stories that'll get you thinking about how you can tweak your real estate investment strategy to build up revenue, realize higher returns, and retain more profit when you sell. Without further ado, here is yours truly, Bill Widener, and this episode's guest, the president at the liquidity source, Stuart Gelb. Most of the companies I know that lend money secured by real estate have the word lender or bank or mortgage in their name, but you chose liquidity. I looked it up, and liquidity is defined as a measure of your business's ability to convert assets or anything your company owns with financial value into cash. Ah, now I get it. All kidding aside, listeners, you are in for quite the conversation today as Stuart shares all the different ways liquidity can be created from investment real estate and how that has changed in these unprecedented times. I hope we find you all safe and well today as we continue to evolve towards normalcy. Thanks for being here today for me and the Realty Speak audience, Stuart. Great to be here, Bill. Stuart, you have an interesting background. You come from an entrepreneurial family with a military edge and had your first job at 10 years old in the family food business. I'm not sure that's what you had in mind at 10. Then you evolved to manufacturing clothing. And for the past 13 years, you've been advising owners of investment real estate and financing their assets. I see a trend, the three human essentials, food, clothing, and shelter. Tell us about that. Okay, Bill. I grew up in Ohio. I had a tough father an ex-Marine that started by himself in the food business. He started by buying eggs at the farm and, and packaging them in the house and with a wagon went house to house selling his eggs and built a huge business. In fact, six or seven years ago, we sold out to Cisco Foods. So it was a, it was a tremendous asset at the end of time. When I was 10 years old, I didn't go to camp. I went to work like my father wanted me to. And time went on. Uh, I finally graduated college, met uh, the girl that I fell in love with, and got ready to get married and moved to Ohio to continue working in the family business, which I thought was going to be for the rest of my life. She never unpacked. She didn't love Ohio? No, she was from the five towns, and she was not a happy camper. I interviewed with some people in New York, and I got a job at Flagstaff Foods, a company similar to my father's company. That went on for a few years and continued there when my father-in-law kept saying, you got to come into the garment business because we've been around since the days of the depression and you do a great job and we need young uh, people here, bright people, and why don't you come on board? So I thought about it, sounded like a great opportunity, and so I went to work there. I wasn't 100% happy, I wanted to go off on my own and started a manufacturing business with a partner. Uh, just the two of us, and opened up a little a little place in uh, in Brooklyn, 500 square feet, just two people. And 10 years later, we had 200 employees selling all across the country and brought our production to China. It became a major business. But all through all these things, one thing was, this, uh, was the same for me since I've been 10, and it was an obsession with finance and numbers. I always saw the world through numbers. It's, that's, that's, that's how I roll, so to speak. Well, it kind of sounds like that had a lot to do with the success in your previous businesses. Yes, yes. Because, you know, at, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what business you're in, you have to know the numbers. You have to know exactly because that's like the control, the control area. So I started investing in some real estate in early 2000. I also, we had some 
real estate that I helped manage in the family. So I had a lot of access to real estate in general, and I had a passion for it as well. I also became president of the board of a condo. I also became on the zoning board where I live. I was managing real estate. I was buying some real estate, and I also got involved in commercial financing, which was the obsession of financing. That's what brought me there. And it's 13 years, and I love it. And I've been lucky enough to say that everything I did my whole life became a labor of love. It never felt like work, and I always became a success no matter what I did. So I think one of the interesting things is that you know you started as a real estate investor, and as a real estate investor, you have an understanding of the real estate that really helps you when you're now guiding other people around how to finance their assets. That's true. But I think also when you become, just like everything else, when you become seasoned and you've looked at hundreds of deals and you've talked to many, many banks during, that, during those periods, you start to understand what is needed. Because at the end of the day, it's not about being generic and running out and get somebody a great rate on a piece of property. It's really going, asking the right questions of the client, researching it, understanding everything about them, understanding their financials, understanding the things like the net operating income of the property they may be buying or maybe the net operating income of the property that they already own and that they need finance and have a full understanding and finding out from them what their true needs are so you can become a solution-driven advisor, not just running out to get a term sheet. And what I found really unique about you, and and actually surprising, right? Like, how does someone do this? You, be, Because of your background, you were able to enter the real estate lending business from day one on your own. You didn't work for somebody else. Like, you didn't work for a commercial uh, mortgage broker. You didn't work for a big bank. You just went out and did it, and here you are 13 years later, very successful at it. So thanks for telling us that story. Great path through your journey. And I think a lot of people have a misunderstanding about real estate lending, right? Because you have one to four family houses, condos, co-ops. You know, Typically, people go to a bank. I was in the actual residential mortgage business for 11 years, and that's what I did. I did one to four family homes and condos and co-ops, and it's a completely different animal than commercial lending. First of all, most of the loans are sold into the secondary mortgage market uh, to uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, uh, which are the uh, entities that provide liquidity to the banks so that they can lend more money. And then the banks typically service those loans for Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae. But of course, there were very, very strict guidelines. After the 2008 financial crisis, uh, those guidelines even became more strict. And so it's harder and harder for people to get lending on one to four family homes, condos, and co-ops unless you you know fit into the complete box and are able to check off all the items that are required. And there's a lot of paperwork and things like being self-employed make it more difficult. Things like a lower credit score make it more difficult. Things like not having enough assets or down payment or, uh, or equity if you're refinancing make it more difficult. And while we're going to be talking about commercial lending today, which is basically anything that's over a four-family unit, so a five-family, a six-family a, a 200 family, a 700 family, an industrial building, a hotel, office buildings. That is really 
the crux of your business. But you, you said to me that you, you can also help people in one to four families, condos, and co-ops. That's true. But we look at it in a different way. I, I have a partner when I get involved in these, what they call like non-qualified for Fannie and Freddie. And we don't look for deals like $100,000 or $200,000 homes to, to do a residential mortgage. But there's a lot of people that have 500000 or or more that they're investing in homes or they're renting places or they're buying or purchasing. And they need additional help because for a lot of reasons, I'll give you a, a couple. Fannie and Freddie want a certain level of FICO score, which really is their credit rating. So if you haven't paid rents on time, um, or yeah, or you missed your car payments, uh, or there's some there's something that you didn't do well in your financial you know arrangements. Your FICO score could be low. And what's considered a low FICO score? I would say anything under seven hundred is questionable, especially if you're looking for a larger loan. That that's probably the the the, the minimum that they want. Or also, you can have other things in the commercial world. Also, you could have partners where you have an eight hundred score. And one of your 33% partners has a 550 FICO score, and the bank may not give you the loan because of the partner. And you're talking about traditional bank lending. Traditional. So there's all these uh, kind of issues that come up. In fact, just to give you just a couple quick examples, we recently got a million and a half dollar loan person that was in the cannabis business. Most banks won't touch that today. When he took the property, he took or 12% hard money loan. And we were able to get him a, a loan for about 5%, which is not as low as 3 or 4 in a typical mortgage market. In fact, some mortgages today are, in fact, even under 3%. He wasn't financing the property where he either grows or distributes cannabis. This was for his residence. In fact, it was the second home. It was a luxury. It was a second home. But because he was in the cannabis business, the traditional lending scenario bank said no but no because he had a he i guess what they felt was a risky business exactly and then there's other things my partner did the one on a um residential recently where the guy was a doctor he had a fico score under 720 i think it was 640 as a matter of fact he went for a jumbo loan which they needed a minimum of 720 that was one problem the other problem he had was they want two years of w-2 income well in his case he had W-2 income, and then he went off on his own. So he had one year of his own, and he only had one year of W-2 in the last two years. Therefore, for most banks, it wasn't going to happen. We got the, the loan done. This is a part of what it is that you do. What you primarily do is what we talked about before, which is the you know mixed-use apartment building, the office building, the 100% residential apartment building, hospitality these kinds of commercial lending loans. Which of these fall into the purview of what it is you handle? Most of my clients are either purchasing a multifamily building or they buy a piece of property, they're going to do construction because we do construction, we do perm financing, we do purchase, we do refinance. Those would be our typical type of clients. If you have a developer and that developer is buying a piece of land because they're going to put up an office building or an apartment building, you would be able to get them the construction loan and then lock in the permanent loan for after that as well? Yes, probably one of the hardest loans for the banks to do. And the, the reason is, imagine that if someone is going to build a, a property and the property is going to have all-in costs $25 million, $30 million, $40 million, $50 million. Well, in the midst of the building, if there's problems, 
and they can't get a certificate of occupancy or something happens, they can't complete the job, the bank doesn't really have collateral. So they're always worried that there's a high risk. It's not like if you buy a building that is multifamily and you have all these rents coming in from 50 different tenants, what's the risk? Pretty low. A couple people leave, a couple people come back. It's considered a minimal risk. If you go to construction, the banks that get involved are typically looking, first of all, the resumes of the client. If he's going to do multifamily, how many has he done before and been successful at? If he's going to go for hospitality and never built a hotel before, you can forget it. They're not, they're not lending you money for a hotel. The resume is really important. Do you guide your clients through this whole process and help them you know, with the resume? Like If they just go to a bank, you know, they're kind of on their own with all this stuff, right? And then it gets underwritten and it either gets accepted or it doesn't. So first of all, we understand exactly what the banks are looking for. Let's talk about the size of the loan. So there's some banks, we probably work with only four or five banks that do construction loans in the five to $30 million range. Those banks have certain requirements and they have certain loan amounts. Typically in their loan amounts, they would do 65% would be the loan from the bank and 35% would be the equity that they put in. The 35% could also be include the price of the land that they already bought, but they have to have 35% equity into the deal so give me an example of that. Let's say there's a deal and they paid $5 million for the land and everything all in to finish the project is going to be $30 million, for instance. Well, let's make it $25 million so that I can do the math in my head. So $5 million is 20% of $25 million. It goes like this. So if it's $25 million and they have to come up with 35%, so 30% would be 7.5, another 5 is one two fifty. So they would have to come up with an eight million seven fifty Because they had $5 million in land, they would need three seven fifty in cash. Or when they end up closing, they might have also done some demo work. They might have done, you know, for the permits, um, all kinds of things. So when they go to the bank, they have to have copies of those checks to show that there's $8,750,000 in the deal by closing. And anything that's missing has to be covered by cash. Does that make sense? Yeah. And you just proved to me that you really know your numbers because you did all that in your head. <laughs> yeah. That's my obsession. That's yeah, my obsession. Yeah. Right. Okay. Well, now we know you weren't kidding when you told us that. Right. So that's only one part of it, by the way. So let's go on. So let's say we started with the resume. We know what the people do. We know that they have experience in the space. We have uh, a track record. We have uh, copies and pictures of properties that they've done in construction. We know that these guys are real and they've, and they've, done, and they've done work before and they've been successful at it. That's important. The next thing is how many partners are involved? Well, we need personal financial statements and all the partners. Why is that? The banks want to make sure that, number one, they have enough liquidity. Number two, they don't have a lot of debt on the books or, or a personal debt that maybe they're going to have a problem. Number three, they ask for things like, we'll call it global cash flow. So in a global cash flow example, or a client may own 12 properties. Well, they make him list every property, what he paid for it, what the current mortgages are, What's the current income? What's the current expenses? And they make sure it's profitable. Why is that? Because he could have a building, especially today during the pandemic, that had lost the tenancy, that's not getting the rents, and all of a sudden, his overall global cash flow doesn't have the ratio that they need for the bank to pass it. 
So it's not just the property that they're dealing with. It's everything that he or she already owns that they have to prove this global cash flow. So so actually, I'm glad you brought up the pandemic because now in a pandemic, I mean, that scenario is way different than it was, say, two or three years ago. Oh, my God. So, so different. So, so, what, what do you do? so what happens now when, let's say, someone owns several multifamily buildings, they're going for a, a new loan on a purchase or a construction loan or whatever it happens to be? How are you helping people get around that? The banks stress tested much better than they did before. Simple example. The client, she has a commercial building. And in the commercial building, you may have mixed tenants, maybe two or three mixed you know, commercial tenants, and has 10 or 12 residential tenants. So the bank used to take copies of the leases and make sure that the leases match the income from the financials. They were supposed to get $300,000 a year, and sure enough, the financials show that they got the $300,000 a year, and then they check the expenses to make sure that they can get the correct net operated income. As an advisor, are you gathering all this data in advance from your client and kind of put together a package before it gets to the bank? Absolutely. But but then the bank takes it to another level now because of the pandemic. And this is the example that I get. The bank would come now what they never did before and say, okay, look, you have 10 tenants there. We want to see the, deposit to, the deposits of those checks for the last six months. Why? Because some of the guys that were having problems made deals with their tenants and said, you know what, pay me 50%. They never told the bank. Some of the tenants may be paying zero. They didn't tell the bank. And how do they pay the bank? Out of their own personal wealth or other cash that they had. Which impacts their quote unquote global cash flow. And also affects the fact that those buildings may not be a safe as far as collateral goes. Or maybe if, if that's the building that they're trying to buy or that's the building they're trying to refinance, imagine you had a building and the building was throwing off $300,000 a year of net operating income. And today, because half the tenancy is not paying the rent, it's only throwing off one fifty. dollars Well, it's, they're not going to refinance it. And they go back now and test things that they never tested before because of the pandemic. So we assist in everything from the beginning to the end and also to check as much as we can up front because we work on success fee only and we want to check out as much as we can before taking on anybody because if it's not going to be good, we don't want to spend a lot of time and spend months to only to find out that it's not going to work. I want to ask you a question about that because you talked about a success fee. So you obviously are charging a fee to do this, but you don't get it unless you're successful. Are there upfront fees that the client has to pay for appraisals or phase one environmentals, things that they would have to pay up front that they're going to lose if they don't get the loan? There's a lot that we're just checked before the banks get to that. It's not as simple as, well, if you want a loan, send me in the thing. First, the banks want to see the leases, the address, look at the building, look at it on Google, the resumes, the background, the personal financial statements, when they get all this and it looks like it's going to be successful, they send a term sheet. They tell you what, you know, we plan on, on charging you X percent for the rate. Uh, maybe it's a 20-year amortization. Maybe it's a 30-year amortization. These are different things that they have. They're going to tell you the fees, the commitment fee. They're going to tell you the debt service coverage ratio. They're going to give you a lot of information. And if you agree and sign and send in what they call a good faith deposit, typically the good faith deposit, of course, is higher depending on the size of the loan 
they'll take those deposits to use for what they call third party, which is they're going to go and, and get an appraisal done. They're going to go and get environmental done. Because remember, in a, in the banks are liable on environmental. You can't just take an old environmental and give it into the bank. The bank has to use their people because if, God forbid, there's a problem in the environmental, even years to come, the bank can have a liability as well. So all these fees will have to be paid at that point. When I say success fee, I have no retainer. I don't charge anything unless I complete the deal, but I probably complete 95% of my deals. It's very rare that I'm not completed in the deal because I have a lot into it and I know what I'm doing. Therefore, what's happening is you have a very, very high sense by doing your own due diligence and underwriting prior to submitting it to the bank that it's going to be a successful deal. So now when this good faith deposit goes to the bank from the client, the client can be pretty assured that they're not going to lose that money and not get the loan. Right. Unless something crazy comes up. So tell me a story about something crazy that came up with someone didn't get the loan. Okay. So they, they did an environmental. They found out that there was um, a gas station there before. They don't do that right away. Just because you go for a loan, they don't say, oh, let's do environmental right away. They, they don't do that right away. Do all the other due diligence first. At the end, they do environmental and they do appraisal. The appraisals are interesting also today. So I'm going to give you a great example. Some of the banks will actually go to the appraiser because remember, they use their people. Since 2008, before 2008, some people went to appraisers and said, listen, I want to get $7 million for this, for this loan. I needed to appraise for $10 million. And they made a deal with the broker, whatever the deal was. And the broker went and got them the $10 million appraisal. And they knew, you know, this became like a fraudulent thing that people were doing. So now the banks say, one, I'm using my appraiser. And two, you cannot even call my appraiser on the phone. You can't talk to my appraiser. You have nothing to do with the appraiser. Well, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. That's a good thing, right. Here's the thing that's not so good that some of the banks are doing. Not all, but some of the banks are doing. They're going to their appraisers and listen to me. I know that we're told them that we can give them 70% of the value. But what, because of COVID, I want you to be a little more conservative. So if that loan is supposed to appraise at $10 million, maybe it only appraises at nine two or $9 million because the bank told the appraisers to be a little more conservative. So that's not a good thing. And I know some of the banks that do that. So we stay away from those people. Unless, the person had, unless I know the bank is really good and the guy was only looking for a 50% loan to value on it, so it wouldn't make a difference. But I'm sensitive to the fact of these these problems that are out there. And Talking about appraisals, a commercial appraisal, investment property appraisal is done based on mostly on the net operating income. So how, is, how has COVID changed that? You know, because you gave the example before where uh, some property owners have lost their tenancy or let's say somebody is selling a building and it used to be, you know, 100% occupied and everyone was paying the rent or 98% of the people were paying the rent and now... 70% of the people are paying the rent and it's 20% unoccupied. Uh, I guess they're underwriting it based on what the numbers are now. Not a hundred percent. It's a great question. So I'll give you like a couple examples where you have to, where the banks are being careful. One, who's getting killed in this space? Office, office space, right? So even if you have an office that's leased and let's assume that they've checked that they're, they're getting paid, When's the lease coming due? 
and they shy away from office deals anyway. So at best, you're going to, you may be able to get the loan, but they're going to give you a lower loan to value something that's going to be, they're going to be very concerned about office space. Some, some banks won't even touch it. What's the typical uh, loan to value on office space now? It could be, first of all, there's a lot of banks that won't even touch it. So it doesn't matter what it's not even, it's not even loan to value. It's like, we're not interested in the deal. It's office. And then most of the banks may be like 60% rather than 70%, which we can get on multifamily. Right. But that doesn't sound so bad. 60%. No, but, yeah. they, but, but listen, but they further check it. Like the tenants are there. How long are the leases in place? Now, if you have three tenants and one of the major guys there has eight months left, that's not a good thing. But if you, in years before when things were hot or where things were great, like if you had a, a piece of property on Madison Avenue, which is no longer a great street, it used to be great. And the lease was coming up in five months. Who cared? They knew there would be 14 guys coming back. So they're very sensitive to all these things and, and things change. And another thing is retail has gotten very tough. The likes of Amazon, Costco, Target, all the stores that have taken down the guys that are in the brick and mortar. So they're very sensitive about retail also. These things change periodically and you know the, the flavor of the month changes and they watch certain things it's always about risk appetite. Quick little break here, Realty Speak fans, to take a moment to share with you that I love that you choose to listen and learn from Realty Speak. And now, with that in mind, I have added a resource page to the RealtySpeak.com website. Designed with you in mind, it's organized with labeled sections that you can click on to reveal a list of professionals, organizations, and companies in that category that you may rely on to help you, the investment property owner. It is a work in progress, but there are already many resources there that you can benefit from. And the first thing you'll want to do is go to the first category, Property Owner Advocate Organizations. There you will find links to RSA, SHIP, and SPONY, and instructions on how to receive their incredibly informative periodic emails that will keep you in the loop with everything you need to know as an investment property operator. Check it out at realtyspeak.myc. It is resources on the menu, and I added a link in the show notes of this episode as well. My mission, be the best real estate advisor, consultant, and broker I can be while helping you sell, purchase, and finance investment real estate. I'm just a phone call away, 917-232-8529. What else can I say? Solutions in real estate, it's in my DNA. And now back to the show. So do you have any stories for me about some of these things that have happened over the last, say, year or so? Some really good stories, actually. Uh, so I had an, uh, a CPA friend of mine, and he called me up and said, I have a guy that I'm, is my client, meaning his client, I'm very concerned about. I said, okay, so tell me a little bit about it. He said, well, it's been in the family, this property for 50 years, and he had a commercial client on the ground floor that was paying 30000 a month. It's a big number. His upstairs was rental, residential rental, and he was getting about $320,000 a year for the upstairs. So you'd think he was getting a gross of about $680,000. So it was just two units? No, no, no. Uh, the, the ground floor was one, one tenant. The upstairs was six or seven tenants. Oh, okay. So the, biz, the building at the time probably was worth something like 17 or $18 million. He loses the ground floor tenant. And if that's not enough, um, he's got DOB problems uh, with landmarks, and they have to department of, of buildings, department of buildings, yeah. and they have a lot of work to do. And he needs more money in order to get the. He needed like a 
he had a loan out there for about a million and a half dollars, but needed another million or a million and a half dollars to do this additional work. And he had over $2 million, but he didn't want to take all his money out of the bank to do this deal. He wanted to get it from the bank. So he went originally to his bank that had the loan now. They had no interest in doing the deal because he lost the, the commercial tenant. So think about this. So now he has an income of $320,000 and he has a, expenses of two seventy five. So now he's got about $45,000 in net operating income, which would make the building worth almost nothing. So I would say 90% of the banks wouldn't touch it. So first, I had gone to a couple of the banks that I knew may have interest because they do more what they call asset-based loan. You know, based on the fact that the asset itself, even if it was empty, could be worth as much as $10 million. And all he was looking for was three. That was one good thing. And the other thing was is he had a couple million dollars in the bank, which is another good thing, which means he could handle a mortgage, but his property didn't show the rental income in order to get the mortgage. If that wasn't enough, the DOB problem. So when I went to the couple banks that I knew that would do the asset base, they wanted to see copies of the DOB violations. And when they got them, they said, we can't do the loan. I said, why not? Because one of the DOB violations was rated as severe. And if it's severe, we can't do it. Well, maybe you'd give up. It was not, I wasn't giving up on this deal. So because I'm also president of the board of a building and condo building downtown, I know expediters and different people that are in the space. I called some of my friends. They told me what to do with the guy's engineer. And they got the engineer to draft a letter explaining to the bank why this should not be considered severe. And it passed the test. So the bank approved the loan because the guy had an asset that was worth about $10 million because it just was and nothing to do with the rental. And because he had the cash and this would give him the ability to get the loan from the bank. Uh, it wasn't as cheap as, um, like today, I could probably get loans in, in the low threes, depending on the length of the, the, the term. But this was like four and a quarter, which was not high. It wasn't like a hard money loan, and he got a five-year loan. And it took me a few months to get it done, but we got the loan done. So this is something of, of pride, because this is what I call solution driven. You're not just walking in, taking a guy's information, going to a bank and getting him a loan. You're finding out what the problems are, understanding all their assets, their cash, their personal financial statements, the net operating income of the building, what problems like DOB in this case, whatever those problems are. And you're taking all that in and then you're also reaching out to your people or your assets. How do we get this guy the help he needs to get this loan done? And then figuring out a way to cross the finish line, because that's what it's all about. So when a loan like that, um, is the bank holding it in their own portfolio? Is it considered CMBS? Or did they did they do it through HUD or Fannie? No, they held the loan. They yes. held the loan in yes. their own portfolio. Yes, right? yes, okay. yes. It may not have been the structure that normal banks go after, but it was very safe. I mean, really, what could happen the guy's not going to lose the building. If they lost the building, they have a building worth $10 million. It wasn't a warehouse on Long Island on a side street that they said, whoa, if this goes down, what am I going to do with the property? Now, is there a prepayment penalty on something like that? There's a prepayment penalty, of course, almost all banks have. But only because, only because imagine this, let's take a ridiculous. The guy takes a loan for $5 million and six months later, he sells the building. 
the bank did all this work, da, da, da. They made no money on the loan. They took the collateral. They lent him the money and he left. So typical would be five, four, three, two, if it depending, this also depends on the length of the loan. And the length of the loan, I guess there's a, there's a length of how many years before the loans essentially expires, right? And then it has to be refinanced. Correct. But the term of the payments could be interest only, could be based on 20 years, 25 years, 30 years. So when you say length, it really takes two things into consideration, right? The amortization and the and, when, and I guess when the balloon is due. The first part is the term. So the term would be typically today, five, seven, or 10 years is, is typical in the commercial space. And then the amortization could be typically 20, 25, or 30 years. Now, that's all important. And that's, that's also some of the things that we check. Why? Because when I go to a client, I, I want to know what he or she needs. Are they looking to have great cash flow? And they'd want to go farther out, like a 30-year term. So you can only go to certain banks to get that. If they're looking for um, rates, where most people look, you know, the rate's always included. But sometimes you want to pay a little bit more if you get what you want long-term. Because if you if you need a 30-year term and your bank's only willing to give you 20, so you paid a quarter point more, but get 30 years, you could have hundreds of thousands of dollars more coming in because of the longer term. So that's all important, but needs you need to know what the client needs and what the best solutions are for that client. Recourse and personal guarantee. Tell our listeners what that's all about and why it is important. Recourse and non-recourse. And why is it important? For some people, it's extremely important. And I'll give you like a perfect example. Some of my clients have what they call a large contingent liability. What do I mean by that? When they give the bank their global cash flow, the banks see that they signed personally on a number of construction deals, on a number of investment properties, and the level of signatures out there from recourse lending may be and make the deal very thin for the bank because they have too much contingent liability. So what I try to do when that's the case, and this has happened to us, go to banks that will not request personal liability. And that could be simply because the property that we're asking the bank to cover does not have high risk. And what do I mean by that? Multifamily is probably considered the safest property in the country today. And why is that? Because when you have a stabilized property, and stabilized means it's full, or 90% full, or 95% full with multiple tenants, the chances of that going bankrupt is very, very slim. Why? Because you lost a tenant, you lost three, you lost four, and you re-rented to three or four new ones. If rents went down, you still, you still basically are cash flowing. It's not, it's not high risk. What would I consider high risk? You have a multifamily, maybe with residential upstairs, but the ground floor was a strong retail, and you lost the retail. So the, that, would, that would make it more prone to ask for recourse. So you have to know which banks to go to and, and what the properties are and know where to bring your client to make sure, again, you're finding the solutions for the client. And it sounds to me like you're finding the future solution for the client because if they have that mixed-use building where they uh, lost a tenant and they signed 
uh, personally on the loan on that building, right? And now they're going for another building. That's going to impact their ability because they have this contingent liability, which now is a real liability because they lost the ground floor tenant. Right. Or, right they, or, or they may or maybe now, like within the pandemic, they have a few buildings that they have these problems at, and now they, they're, they're not bankable. Right. So the so if they had non-recourse loans on those buildings, when they go for the new deal, either in a purchase or a refinance, they're going to be more apt to get it because they don't have this contingent liability? Well, if they don't have the contingent liability and, they ha- and, the, and, and the property by itself is valuable, like multifamily, we're going to get them non-recourse. But there are some banks that will ask for recourse no matter what. I have banks that I brought some phenomenal deals to. And I said, listen, the one thing is they're not signing. And the bank will say, look, it's a phenomenal deal. There's 10 banks out there that'll do the deal. We cannot do it because we don't do deals that are non-recourse. So that's that's the other thing. So these banks obviously have a lot of clients and they won't do anything but recourse. Why are the clients not even looking around to find it out? So maybe it's not important to them. Another example that happened, I met with a bank, thought we could do deals there. And they, they do a lot. I said, well, how do you do in the commercials? Oh, we do great. I said, well, you give 70% financing? Sure, we give 70% financing. And what else about that? Well, we give 70% financing, but the clients have to give us a 10% depository relationship. Oh, so if the appraisal is $10 million, you're willing to give them $7 million, right? Because that's 70%. But you want a million dollars in depositories that you're going to pay nothing on or maybe 30 basis points. So what you're doing is you're giving them a $7 million loan. They're putting a million dollars in the bank accounts. So you're really giving them a $6 million loan. And you're charging them on the $7 million for the loan, right? And you're only giving them six. And this is what goes on all the time. So imagine they're not even thinking that way and they do these deals and, and you don't have to do that. Now, what about lines of credit? So I had a client come to me that has multi-properties, investment properties, great. And some low LTVs, which is great, meaning they're not choking with an LTV. Like it's hard to get additional financing if you already have 75% or 70% LTV. So they're not highly leveraged. No, at 70%, they are highly leveraged. But this particular client is not highly leveraged. In this example, they were not highly leveraged. They said, you know what? This is right when the pandemic started. We believe, a lot of people did, there's going to be a lot of things for sale and a lot of deals to be made. We wanted to have the cash ready to make a deal. And why do they want to do this now? Is because typically it takes three months or so to get a loan done. You just can't walk in the bank and say, listen, I want to borrow $5 million. Here's a check for $5 million. No, you got to... You have to go for a mortgage. They got to do the appraisal. They got to do the environmental. They got to go through all the global cash flow. They had to do all the due diligence. And then three months later, you'll get that loan. But what if a deal comes up and you need $5 million right away to make, to pay so that you can buy that property that's in default or that's, you know, that you need the cash right away? So that's the thinking. They said, well, there's a couple of pieces of property here that we can use to get the loan. So I said, how much money are you looking for? They said, about $5 million. I said, I don't want you to mortgage your buildings that way. Why not? Because if you take a $5 million mortgage, here's what the problems are. The day that we close, you're going to pay fully amortized loans. So it's going to cost you a lot of money with amortization. You don't know when and if you're going to make a deal on a bank. Imagine it went on for a year and you were paying a couple hundred thousand dollars in mortgages 
and then you decided, I'm not going to do it. I can't find anything. I want to get out. You're going to have a prepayment penalty to get out of the deal. So, you know, you could be in this deal for five or $600,000 and get killed. Here's my idea. Let's take it to the bank. We'll remortgage the properties that you have now that would have low LTVs and we'll get you four or $5 million in lines of credit. Now, what will that do for you? The line of credit, you're not going to pay any money until you start drawing on the line. You have the line of credit there. If a deal comes up, you draw down the line of credit, you pay interest only. And if they decide that it's not working for them, they can just get out of the line of credit at really basically no cost, very little cost. Did they have to refinance the existing mortgage? They refinanced the existing mortgage to the new bank. The building's worth $10 million. They wanted $2.5 million on that specific property. So they only owe $2.5 million. Now they're going to owe five. And now they'll have a $2.5 million loan with the new bank and a $2.5 million line of credit on that property. Right. And they're not paying any interest unless they're using the money. Exactly. They're still paying a mortgage on the first $2.5 million, but they were paying a mortgage on the first $2.5 million anyway. And they're going to say to the same bank, by the way, we just bought this $10 million property, use my $2.5 million line of credit, and they're going to take that $2.5 million that they put down now, assuming that everything's right about the property, the income, everything works. They'll get a mortgage on that, and they have the cash ready to make a deal. I'm loving your story, Stuart. <laughs> I hope the listeners are, too. I think they are. They're like, wow, this, this is complicated. Well, I guess I that's why I use someone like Stuart. <laughs> I have a better one to tell you, too, I think. Oh, all right. Like, Good. So Go ahead. More stories. One of the guys, uh, cli- actually, was my, my, one of my biggest clients came to me and says, listen, I'm renting to this guy in, that has four gyms, and I'm having a hard time. He's not paying his rent every month. I think he's having cash flow problems. I needed to help him. So I went and sat with him and his partners, and he was explaining to me that he's just having cash flow problems. And I went over all their personal financials, all their business, all their loans that they had out there. And they only had one loan on one mortgage because the other three buildings they rented and one building they owned. This is the person who owns the gyms that you're having a conversation with. Yes. So there's four gyms, one building that they own, three buildings that they rent. And besides that, altogether, they had a lot of expenses. The expenses were running 45000 a month. So they came to me and their idea was, how can you help me get a better mortgage? Because the mortgage I have right now is a 20-year amortization. So right away, blink, blink, I'm going to get them a 30-year amortization. And also, I'm going to get them a better rate. That combination took the $20,000 a month problem down to eleven. dollars So they're going to save about $9,000. But I didn't stop there. I noticed that they had all these equipment loans going on. And the totality of expenses were $45,000. I restructured all the debt, restructured all those loans, got them interest only where I could, and brought the $45,000 down to about twenty-one dollars or $22,000 a month, saving them almost $300,000 a year in cash flow. And at the end of 10 years, they would have been whole. And also in the plus. So... Again, it's not about getting somebody a loan generically at a great rate. It's trying to figure out what you need to do to find the best solution for your client 
no matter whether you have to go to an expediter, whether you have to go to a bank, whether you have to go refinance their uh, equipment finance, no matter what it is, that you're going to find what you need to do to accomplish the goal. And the goal is getting the best solution that you can find for that client. Before you mentioned hard money, uh, so I want to I want to share with the listeners a little bit about what that is, and also what's this term mezzanine loan? Is that a bridge loan, or is a bridge loan something different, Stuart? What is a mezzanine loan typically? A developer he goes for construction. Typical deal on a large construction loan could be fifty fifty, where you have to put up fifty percent of the equity. And the bank puts up 50% of the equity. And there's some large construction loans, like 100 or $200 million deals, that the bank's not going more than 50%. So the developer says to himself, listen, on a $200 million line, $100 million is a, is a bit to chew, right? I don't think I can come up with that. Depending on how the pro forma works, which is really, in a pro forma, you have to go through this on all construction loans. It showed the hard costs, the soft costs, the land costs, and also... The performer has to show what the income is going to be, which they check on comps. It's not like, you know, they can just put down any number. They check the comps in that area, depending if it's multifamily, what it is. And they have to know that those numbers make sense. They can go to a MES guy. The MES guy could be very expensive. I'll give you an example because it happened to me. We, I had a client that was looking for a $20 million loan, and he wanted no personal guarantee. I found a bank to get him $17 million. So he needed another $3 million. When I went out to the Mez guy, the Mez guy wanted 15%. The money had to be used immediately. And there was a point up front and it was a point at the back end. When you say a point, they had to pay 1% fee up front and 1% on the back end. Right. That being said, imagine 15% on, on $3 million is $450,000 a year for the loan. So it cost you $900,000 plus the fees. So you got a million dollars. The million dollars was what it was going to cost for the $17 million at 4%. So that's how expensive it could be. But you may need the MES guy to close the gap. Now, typically, the banks don't allow the MES unless the guy that's the lender is a big guy in the real estate business because if the deal collapses and they can't get the CFO or whatever the problem was or the guy defaults, they can bring in that MES guy to finish the deal. That's where I see it being used. And what about the hard money and, and bridge loans? The hard money is used for a number of reasons. Guy buys a, a building and it's totally vacant. Goes to a bank, he can't get a loan because there's no cash flow. He says, you know what? All I need is a couple million dollars. I can fix it up. I'll get it rented. Everything will be done. So because he paid all cash for the building or mostly cash, the hard money sizes up. He says, you know what? The building's worth $5 million bucks. He needs $2 million. I'll become the bank. I'll take first position on the property. I'll give them the $2 million bucks at 10 or 12% plus points. So this is a hard money private lender? Hard money private lender. Right. That's just taking his capital and this is what he does and this is how he gets high returns and he knows what the risk is. He becomes the bank. He takes the first position and then he gets also a couple points and then if it goes more than a year, he charges again. I mean, they have their own way of doing things. So they make a lot of money on this hard money loan. But interesting enough today, I have banks today actually that would do these bridge loans. I'll give you an example. So I have a client right now. So is a bridge loan then a replacement for a hard money loan? It can be. Oh. So I'm going to give you like a perfect one. So a guy right now is buying a property for $6 million. He's going to need 
probably 20 million by the time he knows, but he doesn't know exactly if it's going to be an industrial site or it's going to be a multifamily. He doesn't know, but he knows one of the two, he's going to be fine. He doesn't know what he wants to do. So he says, Stuart, I want to put $3 million down. Are we going to be able to find a bank to give me the other $3 million? We don't have the tenant. We don't have the cash flow. We don't have anything. What can you do? So I called one of my bankers that I know that does the bridge loan, and he'll give us a loan for $3 million for 5.5%, which is not cheap, but it's not outrageous. Uh, They take a point in and a point out, which also is a little bit, but it's not ridiculously expensive. And now he has the access to that money. He can do it for 12 months, and then there's extensions. He can do it for over two years, and there's extensions, but he'll have the money that he needs to get to the point where he has the tenant and he knows exactly what he's going to do. And at that point, we can go to a regular bank, get a further construction loan, and then a perm out once he's done. So the bridge loan is basically the bridge from the initial acquisition to the point where it's stabilized enough that he can go get this construction and permanent. A hundred percent. Great. I think you do commercial financing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm learning from you. I hear I you. I'm learning from you, Stuart. Okay. And I'm sure our listeners are too. Do you have any stories around like where a developer goes out doing ground up construction and creates a private placement where he has limited partners? And then after they finish the project, they want to cash out and return some of the original equity to the partners? Absolutely. I'm glad you asked that question. So I'm going to give you an example. And I think this is the reason somebody needs to have an expert when they go for their financing. So in this case, we had a client did ground up construction, did a great job, took about two and a half years to complete and stabilize, which is considered pretty quick. The property was supposed to perform out. And when you say stabilize, you mean now it's fully rented? Correct. And by the way, fully rented for us means you have all the leases in place. It doesn't mean necessarily that everybody's fully living there, but the, the leases are completely done and signed. How closely did the actual stabilization match the original pro forma? It went over. The, actually, the pro forma was for $35 million and the appraisal came in at forty. So what happened now was the client wanted to get maximum 70%, which is not unusual for multifamily. I went to about seven banks, and one of the reasons was every bank that I went to said, and we'll, go, we'll lend you maybe $23 million. We're not giving 70% here. And I said, why? It's a safe investment. The property is worth $40 million. What's the problem? Well, you have investors here, and it looks to me like they're going to fully get cashed out. We want those guys to stay in as much as 10 years. We want them to fully PG, personally guarantee, which is recourse. Not recourse the whole deal. But uh, recourse possibly for one year on the whole deal, and then to recourse the three or four million dollars that is theirs in the deal. They wanted the investors to stay in the deal with equity skin in the game. That was that was the reason. The developer was trying to pay out the investors, and also him. I mean, everybody would get paid out. Everybody would be paid out. They'd be cashed out. In my mind, what's the big deal? They still have $12 million in equity in the property. The property's worth 40. The loan's 28. There's $12 million of equity in the deal, but the investors themselves had no skin in the game. Most banks don't like that. Not only did I get them the bank to give them the 70%, but then I also got them one year of interest only, which was a great deal because interest only for a year was a lot of extra cash. One year recourse and then no PG at all. Uh, and fully cash out and all the investors got their money back. So how did that happen? It's knowing what the client wanted 
knowing what's doable, going out there and shopping the banks until you get the right bank to get the done. Again, solution-driven commercial financing. That's the art. That's my obsession. That's my love. That's my passion. And so at the end of that deal now, you have these investors that got all their cash back from their original investment. Because of the interest only, they're going to get more of a return in that year. And they still have their equity in the deal so that if if the property ever gets sold or turned over, they're going to get back more money. A lot more money because typically if the deals are great. And look at what's going on today, even with the pandemic and everything and, they all, and, the, and the scare of inflation and all these things that are setting the tone. Real estate is the go-to place. As inflation grows, that real estate value grows. When, when was that loan done? Was it done during the pandemic? About six months ago. About six months ago. Wow. And I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you are, Stuart. Yes, you are. So when you say you did that six months ago, it actually made me think of something that I want to ask you that I almost forgot. What are you seeing during the pandemic in terms of participation in New York? Because a lot of people are saying, I'm taking my money out of New York and I'm putting it in other places. What, what, what's the sentiment that you're seeing, hearing? Do you have your thumb on the pulse of what's going on here? I think I do. I mean, I have my own my own feeling about it. I think that New York City itself has a lot of issues still because we still have the eviction issues. Uh, we still have the moratorium, and yeah, right. You have the eviction issues. You have uh, rent stabilization. And we have office where people aren't going back to the office. We have political issues. People don't get on the trains. They're not getting on the subways. A lot of issues going on here, and yet. Places like Long Island and Westchester and some of the boroughs are doing really, really well, especially like multifamily is doing really, really well. A lot of people moved out of the city, and a lot of these places are booming. And when you say the city, you mean Manhattan? Yes, I mean strictly Manhattan. Uh, They've talked about there's a lot of good things going on in Manhattan. There's a lot more activity than it was, but I think most of the deals are more opportunistic, like they're selling apartments, but probably at better prices. But rents are starting to go up, and we seem like we've kind of hit the bottom. But we still have political issues in the city, as you know. It's not, you know, it's not an easy place, and crime is up, and violence is up. There's a lot of things people have a problem with. Well, we're going to have a new mayor in November, and I think 30 out of 50-some-odd people in the city council will be changed. That's good. And so hopefully things will go in a, a better direction. I'm sure that a lot of different people have a lot of different definitions of what better direction means. I think personally that the rent laws are draconian. They're forcing landlords that own multifamily properties that are subject to rent stabilization and rent control to provide what should be a public responsibility privately. And hopefully that will change as time goes on with the challenges against the rent stabilization environment that's in the courts right now. And things are happening almost as we speak. I hope that with the new political environment, that things do change. So our time is drawing to a close, Stuart, and I'm sure our listener would love to hear more. And we're going to make sure that you tell them how to get in touch with you. But before we do that, I have one more question for you. And that is, if you woke up tomorrow, Stuart, and something in the world changed, what do you wish it would be? 
Well, from an emotional standpoint, I guess I'd like to see people get along better than they've been getting along. I'd like to see the political atmosphere change. Of course, I'd like to see the pandemic probably recede, which is probably the biggest thing, because then we can go back to tourism, the theater, the restaurants, and maybe people not being so antagonistic and hurting each other emotionally. Well, I second that sentiment. And there's no doubt that the world has changed in the last 18 months. And I hope in our collective moment of pause, which actually turned out to be way more than a moment, that we all would have learned something we would have otherwise been distracted from. And that we take that with us and don't forget it and actually make the world a better place. Stuart, how do people get in touch with you? They can email me. Stuart, S-T-U-A-R-T, at thelaquiditysource.com. Okay. I guess thelaquiditysource.com is your website, so they can go to your website as well. Absolutely. Everyone, that's going to be in the show notes, so if you're driving, you don't have to write it down. You're going to be able to look it up later. Stuart, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. That was actually Stu Pendus. <laughs> <laughs> Bill, I want to thank you. It was great to be invited here to share my thoughts with you and all your listeners. And I look forward to a lot of business and a lot of activity going forward. Well, there you have it. Everyone, thank you for listening. I look forward to you joining me for the next episode of Realty Speak, the podcast. Please subscribe. You can do so on the website. Just go to the podcast page on the website and there is an opt-in option on the top of the page. Or search for Realty Speak on your favorite podcast app like Podcast Republic, my fave on Android devices, or Apple Podcast for an iPhone. Search it, find it, open it, hit subscribe, and you're in. And please, help Realty Speak grow by sharing the show with others. From the website player, just click share and choose your preferred media platform. And of course, if you'd like to talk about purchasing, selling, or financing investment real estate, access past episodes, or just chat, you can contact me directly via the website at BillWidener.com. That's B-I-L-L-W-E-I-D-N-E-R.com. And remember, it's not about us, but how we help you make the bottom line rise. Until next time. Thank you.